Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Shane White talks about the African Grove, a theater company with an entirely black cast and crew that played to mostly black audiences for several years at different locations in antebellum New York. First housed in a new building on Mercer Street, near the outskirts of the built city in 1822, the Grove provided a stage to nearly 300 patrons in an eye-catching structure on a mostly vacant street in this real estate speculator's outpost. Nearly 500 slaves still lived in New York when this all-black enterprise began, in a city with slightly more than 10,000 free African Americans and just 120,000 people overall. But New York was one of the first sizable urban centers anywhere to end slavery, and black New Yorkers wanted to establish what freedom really meant. At a time when theater mattered so much it sometimes led to riots, the brave group that set up the Grove put on black renditions of Shakespeare to former slaves. Here, White, the author of Prince of Darkness and Stories of Freedom in Black New York, explains why they should be remembered. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at GothamCenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Toward the end of the summer of 1822, passers-by might have noticed workers completing a building on Mercer Street that differed from anything else in the area. Not that there were too many onlookers. The site was one mile north of City Hall, a few blocks past Canal, which marked the end of the city's built-up area. Mercer was a scruffy street, mostly of vacant lots held by speculators impatient for New York's expansion. The new structure certainly caught the eye. It was a theatre with a capacity of about 300 patrons. What made it stand out even more was that the theatre was a black enterprise, a place for African-Americans to watch performances and where, as one bemused passerby noted in a letter he felt compelled to write to the commercial advertiser, the performers were coloured. It is difficult to convey the remarkableness of those words, the theatre was a black enterprise. The sheer daring of this company of African-American actors was breathtaking. Slavery still existed in the city. Nearly 500 slaves lived there. The institution may have been on its last legs in New York, as it had for some time, but not until 1827 would the final nail be hammered into its coffin. There were slightly more than 10,000 free African-Americans living in the city out of a total population of some 120,000. Most had been enslaved at some point in their lives and all now had to make their own way in the unforgiving city. In the midst of these difficult times, as many African-Americans struggled to make ends meet, 
a small group had founded a black theatre company. There was nothing dilettantish about this decision. In ways that it no longer does, theatre mattered in early 19th century New York. Exponentially more than is the case today, the theatre, not only the stage, but also the pit, boxes and gallery, was a place of fantasy where racial tensions and all manner of social concerns were played out. Within a few years, more than a score of New Yorkers ended up dead at the Astor Place riot, sparked by a squabble between rival Shakespearean actors in 1849. By building their own theatre and performing works by Shakespeare and others, these black actors challenged the unthinking assumption that the stage was naturally and inevitably a space for whites and whites alone. Such audacity was emblematic of the new assertiveness of the city's black residents. New York was one of the first sizable urban centers anywhere to end slavery. And African New Yorkers needed to establish what freedom really meant. Very quickly, they shucked off any lingering remnants of the deference once insisted on by slaveholders. Under the impetus of slavery's long awaited demise, black life in New York displayed a kind of edgy vitality in these transitional years. An aggressive mood expressed not only in dance, music and street parades, but also more surprisingly in theatrical endeavor. The very existence of the theatre company indicated the strength of the black cultural convulsion that accompanied slavery's end. African-American trailblazers are seldom memorialised. There are no statues or markers of any kind for the black theatre company on Mercer Street or anywhere else in New York. As with much of the black history of New York before the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, its story pretty much has been forgotten. This is a pity, for it was a remarkable case of pioneering black achievement. It is easy enough to come up with a list of firsts. By decades, the Black Theatre Company was the first venture of its type. Its members built the first black theatre. They performed the first play written by an African-American. They were the first African-American actors to portray slavery on stage. Its main actor, James Hewlett, gave the Debeau performance by an American-born singer of Italian opera in front of a paying American audience. Hewlett also was, if not the first, one of the very earliest one-man performers, the progenitor of an enormous range of American entertainers, from vaudeville performers through to the likes of Richard Pryor and Robin Williams. All of this is true enough, but a mere trapping of lives on the pages of some sort of Guinness Book of Records is about as lifeless a form of memorialization as can be imagined. Hewlett and his fellow actors in the African company deserve far better. Their story had begun with their first public performance on Monday, September the 17th, 1821. The venue was a makeshift theater in a private dwelling on Thomas Street but the house was full. And when Richard III limped onto the stage, the audience erupted into wild cheering. There was an air of self-congratulation about the production. And with good reason for virtually all present had either been born into slavery 
or were the children of former slaves. This was a bold black incursion into the world of acting. The African Go Theatre, or simply African Theatre, was the mother Bethel of the African-American stage. The choice of play was deliberate, for Shakespeare was an integral part of American culture, and Richard III was probably the nation's most often performed and popular play during the first half of the 19th century. There was an additional reason the selection of this play was particularly apposite. The openly manipulative and ambitious protagonist of the play, physically weak, hampered by disability and relying on his ingenuity and cunning to achieve his own advancement, was not that far removed from the trickster of African-American folklore. Certainly the complexities of the juggling act Richard attempted throughout the drama must have resonated with the tortuous process of negotiating their self-purchase that some of the actors and many in the audience had recently endured. If the very idea of blacks performing Richard III on stage was improbable to contemporaries, just as important was what they had in mind as they were doing it. Even well into the 20th century, there was something unusual and daring about so-called colorblind casting. That is having African-American actors performing roles assumed to be for whites only. In 1967, a 16-year-old Ricardo Khan, later to be a Tony Award winner, purchased a ticket for a matinee performance of Hello Dolly at the St. James Theatre. 30 years later, he remembered vividly awe he had felt when the raising of the curtain revealed Cab Calloway and Pearl Bailey in the lead roles. I wasn't inspired because it was on Broadway, but because it was an all-black cast. It was a cast, Khan told a New York Times writer, that looked like me. There is no surviving direct testimony from 1821, but the spectacle of a former slave performing as Richard III must have thrilled black members of the audience in much the same way. The creative drive behind the Black Drama Company's first production had come from a black impresario named William Brown. Over the next couple of years, the company would put on a variety of productions, including plays by Shakespeare, The Fortress of Sorrento by Mordecai Noah, a local author and newspaper editor, Tom and Jerry, the international smash hit of the 1820s, and at least one play written by William Brown himself, Shot Away, or The Insurrection of the Caribs. In its early months, the company performed in various venues, but in July 1822, they moved to their Mercer Street Theatre. Not only was this establishment the first theatre built by and for Blacks, but it also must have been one of the largest investments made up to that time by any African-American entrepreneur. It is an unacknowledged beginning to Black business history. The quality of the performances was mixed. On the one hand, actors routinely forgot their lines and props did not always materialise, mishaps that occurred regularly enough with white performers. But on the other hand, James Hewlett, the troupe's headliner, was very good and likely Ira Aldridge, the greatest black actor of the 19th century, also got his start there. Clearly intrigued, 
ordinary white New Yorkers continue to attend, pay their money and applaud wildly. Still, many New York newspaper editors heaped derision on the African theater. The black company's initial success and aggressiveness irritated many white New Yorkers, not least of all Stephen Price, the city's main theatrical entrepreneur who once used his influence to have the sheriff close down a performance. When the theater reopened, Price employed thugs to disrupt performances, assault actors and destroy costumes. Although the African-American actors persisted for some three years, Brown eventually went bankrupt. The company performed for the last time in 1824. After the company's collapse, Hewlett launched his solo career. For the next seven or eight years, he earned his living performing one-man shows in New York and elsewhere in the Northeast. On at least one occasion, he ventured into the slave states. Hewlett specialized in imitations of famous actors in their best known roles, and by all accounts, he was excellent at his craft. One reviewer thought he had a natural talent for theatrical performances. Another felt confident that those who saw his imitations of Edmund Keane and others must have been convinced by the accuracy and tact of his performance that they were listening to no common individual. He was an African-American, who made a living by imitating Anglo-American actors. Ironically and cruelly, the vogue for white performers in blackface or whites imitating blacks that culminated in the minstrel show in the 1840s would put him out of business. He gave his last known American performance in 1831. As with many of his fellow actors, white and black, Hewlett's life was hardly beyond reproach. On at least one occasion in the 1820s, when touring in Pennsylvania, he reportedly slipped out of town without paying his hotel bill. In the 1830s, after bookings for his act had dwindled to nothing, his transgressions became more serious, and he served two terms in prison for larceny. Upon his release, he left the United States, appearing briefly in Trinidad in December 1839, where he gave a few performances in his own inimitable style. And that was the end of Hewlett in the historical record, although it seems likely that he returned to New York and died there sometime in the mid-1840s. What are we to make of this history? If the successes of the Black Theatre Company and of Hewlett in the 1820s were part of the cultural convulsion that so electrified Black New York, as the hated institution of slavery wound down, a sign of alternative possibilities for relations between black and white, then the closing down of the company and later decline of Hewlett also signaled the eclipse of those possibilities as nervous whites recoiling from the realities of black freedom referred disenfranchisement, segregation, riot and minstrelsy. Not until the Harlem Renaissance of a century later would a similar level of attention be paid to African New Yorker actors, indeed to African New Yorker life. In the end then, and for all the promise of his early years on stage in New York and the dignity of his decline, Hewlett's failure is depressingly familiar. 
But then this is a story of black New York and tales of dreams deferred do not have happy endings. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.